0: Hello and welcome to this week's Business and Technology Show. I'm Tom Lyons and with me in studio is Arthur Beasley, political news editor with the Irish Times, uh, who's going to be talking to me on the latest news in Ireland's corporation tax rate. And uh, we also have Irish Times finance correspondent Kieran Hancock, who's here to talk about the business of sport and in particular Leinster. Uh, We'll start with you, Arthur. Uh, You've got a a page one story uh, on a leading american think tank uh, the washington based tax executives institute uh, warning the government not to make changes to our corporation tax uh, usually we're he- we're hearing very much the the opposite of that aren't we arthur
1: uh, we are. Well, this is uh, essentially it's a lobby group for tax, uh, in-house tax advisors to large American multinationals. It claims to represent no less than 3,000 groups. Now, what's going on is that the Ireland has been under relentless pressure over the corporate tax regime. It's not simply the rate. Uh, and This has been going on for years. Listeners will recall that at the time of the uh, European IMF bailout, there was a uh, concerted assault, if you like, by France and Germany against Uh, Ireland's corporate tax regime. This was spurned by the government, but still the pressure continued, and then we saw the emergence of information in the American political system about Apple's tax uh, scheme in Ireland, which showed that it was paying very, very, very little tax here. And all of this uh, has taken place amid, if you like, a, a global maelstrom in which global leaders have felt Uh, it necessary to to make efforts to extract more tax from large corporations. This culminated last year in a direction to the OECD in Paris to examine base erosion and profit sharing schemes and proposals are, are due from the OECD next month. That's the context in which the Department of Finance has been looking at the Irish corporate tax regime.
0: And what exactly did this submission by the Tax Executives Institute say, Arthur? I mean, what, what were the key points within it?
1: Well, the, the the background is that the Department of Finance has essentially signalled that the uh, double Irish tax arrangement, which is something which has attracted quite a degree of criticism, it's an arrangement deployed by Google and other large companies. And it uh, the government has essentially signalled that this is under review. And the belief in the market in Dublin is that the double Irish Irish is going to be dropped at a particular time. The question is does the government move before the OECD, uh, thereby taking unilateral action, or does it wait until all the other countries in the world uh, move together within the framework of the OECD plan? That's what the Department of Finance has essentially been asking the market. And this group based in Washington sent a submission into the Department of Finance last month, and they say that any Irish move before similar steps by other countries may not be prudent
0: and what's your sense Arthur i mean do you think the department of finance is going to move immediately or do you think it might uh, it, it might follow the advice of this think tank
1: um i i think there there has been a mood in government circles that ireland is going to have to respond in some meaningful way to the tide of international pressure over the corporate tax regime uh, there is an expectation that such pressure really can 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 no longer be spurned and the sense is in political circles and indeed in the tax world, that the days of the double Irish might be numbered. Now, there was a feeling that the government here would be minded to move unilaterally ahead of the OECD. But the force of this intervention by the Tax Executives Institute and indeed in submissions from other bodies would suggest that there would be a pretty cold response on the street within the business community if the government is to move uh, pretty much immediately. Now, there are others in the business community who say, look, the game is up for the double Irish, therefore, it'll be far better for the government to move uh, pretty promptly uh, in order to secure better terms, if you like, for the unwinding of this uh, infamous double Irish uh, tax scheme. There is a procedure known as grandfathering, which many listeners would be familiar with. And essentially, this is where uh, a scheme which is in place for a long time, when it is to be uh, shelved, it is essentially wound down and not uh, put to rest overnight. And the feeling is uh, those who would say that the government should move quickly, uh, they would say that the government would get better grandfathering rights. They could uh, wind down the double Irish over a far longer period than if we were to wait until everyone else and put ourselves essentially at the back of the queue. And Karen Hancock, to
0: bring you in there, I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you think?
1: Well, this whole issue of
2: uh, corporate taxation uh, was actually the subject of uh, uh, briefing documents given to Simon Harris when he was recently appointed as a Minister of State to the Department of Finance. He was given 19 pages specifically around the various uh, tax issues. Uh, involving Ireland at the minute, including the OECD base erosion um, and profit shifting uh, process or BEPS process that Arthur has uh, just uh, spoken about. And he was given a number of possible speaking points um, that he should use, you know, if he's asked about these. And it included that Ireland welcomes this whole uh, process and um, that it's essentially a roadmap or a timetable if you like, uh, towards some action between September uh, of this year and December of next year. Um, and that the OECD may change its international uh, tax guidelines and make recommendations and that Ireland would uh, w- would watch that uh, closely and to make the point that Ireland has a competitive corporate tax rate which is applied to a broad base and uh, is a policy promoted by the OECD. But interestingly, there was no mention uh, of when uh, this whole, there was no mention specifically of when the double Irish might be dealt with by the government, whether it would wait until um, there have been some, you know, there's been some um, coordination globally or whether they should move early to try and get an early mover advantage.
1: That's at the heart of the discussion really and that's why the Department of Finance had an open consultation during the summer and it was as part of this consultation that the Tax Executives Institute uh, made its submission to the department. Now I've had sight of submissions from other groups such as Ernst & Young, the accountants, and Deloitte and the uh, Irish Tax Institute amongst others and uh, certainly in the submissions that I've seen there is a a great degree of uh, scepticism and caution uh, in those submissions to the notion that the government here would move first or unilaterally. And Karen, do you think
0: that there is any advantage to being the best boy in class and uh, trying to go first?
2: It's hard to know. I suppose you can only tell with time, really. Um, if they're going to do something, I presume they'll give some indication in October's budget. That would seem like the natu- a natural uh, point to do it. Um, if, if they don't do it then, I suspect that they'll probably wait and see how this OECD process unfolds um, and, and, and take their guide from that.
0: And Arthur, politically, I mean, do you get the sense that this is something that Minister Noonan, does he have a view? I mean, does he recognise this is something we're just going to have to go along with? Well,
1: if you look at what happened in in the recent past, the argument was always made in Dublin that there would be no unilateral move by Ireland whatsoever. And Then we saw last year the emergence of the details about what was going on within Apple for a great many years, and what we saw was that on the floor of the Doll on government on Budget Day last October, that Michael Noonan uh, shelved quite unceremoniously the uh, procedure under which Apple was able to use was able to declare itself to be stateless in the in the tax sense, which had great benefits for the company. Um, so you, this came only months after Enda Kenny, the Taoiseach, had said look, we're not moving on our own. We will wait for the entire world. So there is a precedent here for unilateral action by the government. You've also got to remember that the European Commission in Brussels has initiated a state aid investigation into Apple's arrangements here. Now, the government says, look, there's nothing to see. The investigation is groundless. There is nothing wrong here at all from a competition perspective. But the very fact of this investigation being underway demonstrates that Ireland is still under pressure on this whole I question. I thought it was very
2: interesting, actually, in the briefing documents that were given to Simon Harris, there was one page on these so-called patent box regimes. These are basically special tax arrangements for intellectual property, and they've been uh, used uh, to good effect, if you like, in the UK, by the UK, Cyprus, Belgium, and a couple of other countries. And the European Commission now is looking very closely at these arrangements and whether they breach state aid rules. Uh, Ireland doesn't have a, a patent box regime, but um, a lot of people have been on our case uh, in, in relation to our corporate tax rate and double Irish and all of that stuff. And I, I thought it was very interesting that in the uh, in the page that was given to Simon Harris in relation to this, we seem to be just having a little uh, dig at some of the other uh, regimes. It says that Ireland is supportive of the decision to look at patent boxes, that there's been a lack of clarity around the issue uh, for some time. And therefore, we believe that there should be a thorough analysis of these measures, in particular, given the persistent calls in Ireland to introduce the patent box. And it'd be helpful to get guidance from the Commission. Ireland can adopt a wait and see approach uh, on, this, on this issue. You know, we've had a bit of a kicking from other countries in relation to various yeah, aspects of our tax regime and i think this is just a little poke at some of the other countries for some of the measures they use that we don't adopt
1: well there's absolutely no doubt about that and uh, in the certainly in the in the irish context we are not the only ones that very 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 well advanced and well entrenched uh, corporate tax regime in place in both Luxembourg and in the Netherlands and there are other countries in Europe uh, which have the same type of thing as well and Britain it is well recognised uh, on the street in Dublin that uh, that Britain is trying to do a lot of the same sort of things in the tax space Just perhaps that Ireland does in a different way. Yeah, Precisely and even at a time when the former French President Nicolas Sarkozy was uh, chasing Enda Kenny for concessions from Ireland on corporate tax, Uh, our colleague Ruan McCormick had a story on the front page of the Irish Times which showed French government marketing material to foreign direct investors uh, saying that, look, at the the effective rate of corporate tax in France is much below the official rate, which is significantly higher than the Irish rate. So pretty much every country in Europe is involved in the same type of activity. The problem Ireland has has found itself in is that we've become something of a whipping boy.
0: And Is there anything, Arthur, that we can do to, to, to sell that alternative message? I mean, you need only think of the UK with the, you know, they've got the Channel Islands, they've got the Isle of Man, they've got the British Virgin Islands, the US is, is supportive of various tax havens in the Caribbean. Uh, like, are we not, are we doing anything to tell that story stronger rather than get backed into a corner?
1: I, I think efforts have been made to uh, explain the situation, uh, but uh, the pressure has been very, very difficult to resist. It must be remembered that when Barack Obama took power uh, many years ago at this this point, that uh, one of the first initiatives that he said he would proceed with was a reform of American corporate tax to ensure that American companies paid more tax in the United States. Pretty much nothing happened. And many of these procedures or mechanisms or schemes which are in place here uh, depend on uh, an exploitation of the difference between Irish tax law and the tax law in other countries. We don't see moves by other countries to reform their tax law uh, ahead of this OECD procedure. But the problem from the Irish perspective is that you have a scheme such as the Double Irish Uh, deployed by google which is a global corporation and the name of ireland is right there in front of the tin it's the double irish this is something which is associated with dublin and business activity going on right here
2: We have to be very careful in relation to our our tax regime because it's one of the few things we have that differentiates us from other countries, particularly for foreign direct investment. We don't have large internal markets that American companies can uh, target simply by basing here. You know, we have a very small population. So Ireland is a a base, a launch pad into the Eurozone, into the wider uh, European Union, and perhaps into the wider Europe as well, uh, including non-EU member countries. We have to be very careful that uh, whatever little uh, competitive advantage we have, uh, we hold on to.
0: Well, I think it certainly has been a key thing which has helped the Irish economy recover, uh, faced with bailing out these various bondholders who are all... B- based in either these various tax havens or based in our European neighbours or based in the US. Uh, just, Karen Hancock, uh, turning to uh, this, uh, a second very interesting story uh, coming out this week, uh, which is to do with uh, Leinster and their sponsorship of Bank of Ireland. Uh, can you just take us through what are the, the headline numbers uh, and what are the key parts of this deal? Yeah,
2: sure. Bank of Ireland has been a sponsor of Leinster since 2007. It's been a great partnership, if you like, because during that time, Leinster's won four European trophies and three Pro-12 titles. So it's been very successful from a branding point of view for an association point of view for Bank of Ireland. Their current deal was due to be up uh, next summer and they've decided to go early and renew and extend the deal uh, by five years out to June 2019. And while they never reveal these figures, my understanding is that the sponsorship is worth over five years. It's worth the guts of six million euro. And what's interesting about this deal over previous deals is that Bank of Ireland for the first time is now going to sponsor amateur rugby right across the province. Previously, it was just an association with the professional team that we all know and watch and see on TV and Brian O'Driscoll and all that kind of stuff. This is actually going to be everything uh, from under-8s mini rugby right up to senior adult competitions at amateur level, right across the province. And Bank of Ireland, over time, will take over the naming rights for the Leinster uh, Schools Cups Junior and Senior Cup competitions, uh, women's rugby and so forth, other competitions within the, the sphere of Leinster rugby. And the professional team association then will be about a million euro a year. That's five million over five years. And the amateur rugby piece, if you like, will be about a million euro, the guts of a million euro over the five years, so a couple of hundred grand a year. And what Leinster are planning to do is use this money to help fund grassroots development, coaching programs, uh, rugby camps, and to try and uh, promote the women's game, etc. Right across and try and get Leinster rugby into every nook and cranny uh, across the province, not just, you know, the traditional heartland and Dublin.
0: And Arthur, uh, you know, when you see the, you know, a bank, you know, spending six million euros supporting, you know, rugby, which certainly in Leinster would be seen as something associated with private schools, uh, you know, would there be a feeling out there at all politically that you know that maybe the bank should be looking at uh you know, reducing rates or passing on if it has additional money passing it on to the to its customers.
1: Well, I. I, I doubt that there's any listener out there that is not a customer of some bank somewhere and uh, any bank customer in this country right now is paying very, very high bank fees in the main and also uh, very, very high rates of interest on mortgages and uh, and for other loans. So, uh, yes, I mean, this is undoubtedly this is good news for Leinster Rugby, uh, but it's still coming off the, the bottom line within the bank. Is there any political traction or any political discomfort with the notion of the Bank of Ireland supporting a rugby team origins? I don't think so uh, it's not something that anyone mentions to me uh, but uh, I do think out, of yeah. course
2: that they also sponsor uh, Munster Rugby they're in the second year of a five year deal there and they're in the final year of a uh, sponsorship of Ulster Rugby as well they used to also sponsor Connacht but Connacht went a different, um, uh, to a different commercial model a couple of years back um, but Bank of Ireland have told me that they would be interested in, uh, in possibly sponsoring Connacht in the future if the commercial terms are right so uh, I, I think essentially what they're trying to do is they're trying to own club rugby and and provincial rugby, if you like, right across Ireland, they see that as a good vehicle for getting across their, their message. It's a bit of a cliche as they're trying to put their arms around um, the club game uh, in Ireland if you like. And I suppose what's interesting is and, and this is where that an interesting inflection point in terms of the professional game in Europe in that um, the French and English clubs now have massive broadcast deals with their domestic broadcasters which has given them huge financial muscle and it gave them the, the wherewithal really to to break away or to try to break away from the Celtic nations and form this uh, European Champions Cup which is a successor competition to the Heineken Cup there was a whole brouhaha but that it's been sorted out now etc but what's very clear is that the French clubs and the English clubs now have serious financial muscle much more so than the Irish clubs or the Welsh or the Scottish because we don't have the audiences here to generate such uh, fine deals with the likes of Sky or BT Sport or whoever. And also, in addition to that, uh, a lot of wealthy people in England and France are now owning rugby clubs and they're putting substantial resources, of their own personal resources into those clubs. Now, in Ireland, we have a model whereby the IRFU owns the four provinces, effectively. Um, and the IRFU, you know, it's a well-run organisation, but it has its own financial challenges. They, they had to uh, build the Aviva Stadium and so on there a few years back. So, they don't have endless resources to put into the club game to keep the likes of Leinster and Munster and Ulster and so forth competitive uh, at European level and increasingly the, the clubs are going to have to go out and do sponsorship deals such as these to try and keep themselves competitive to try and retain their top talent maybe attract the likes of Johnny Sexton back of Ireland, back to Ireland but you know keep the top talent like Sean O'Brien and Jamie Heaslip and so on but I think there's going to come a point a tipping point really for the, the game the provincial game in Ireland whereby they're going to have to sit down and look at whether they should bring uh, external investment into provincial rugby so for example maybe trying to tap into people like Dennis O'Brien or Dermot Desmond you know people who clearly have a love of of sport and have invested money uh, in various uh, sports over the years to see if those kind of wealthy Irish individuals would will be willing to back um, the provincial clubs and that's a big conversation that the RFU has to have with itself and has to have with provincial clubs because um, they have they own and control the clubs at the minute at the provinces at the minute, that means they can have full control over the Irish players who play for those provinces, how many games they play, their access to the national team, to, um, to rugby camps and all that kind of stuff um, but if they don 't do something uh, more and more, I think in the coming years there 's going to be a bigger gulf with the English and French clubs and we 're going to see a, a player drain away from this island
0: and How close do you think we are to that tipping point Karen? I mean, is it something that 's going to happen in the next year or could it be further out
2: well, I suspect it's uh, yeah it 's going to come in the next uh, probably two or three years um, and whether i I suspect that the potential is out there for wealthy individuals to come forward uh, and, and take some ownership participation in the likes of Leinster and, and Munster. Maybe it's something that the fans can do on a collective basis, I don't know. But I think unless something changes radically, I don't think the IRFU is going to have the resources going forward um, to help the provinces remain competitive at European level. It's very hard to see how they can, anyway, if, if the English and French teams can continue to cut the kind of broadcast deals that they've been able to cut over the last uh, couple of years and if more and more wealthy owners uh, begin taking control of clubs in England and France?
0: And do you have an opinion there, there, Arthur, like in terms of seeing, you know, private individuals say, you know, that they, they might be wealthy billionaires who can be controversial? Uh, do you think that that's something that would be good to see come into, into Irish rugby or uh, do you think it would be better to, that they stuck with, with companies or PLCs?
1: Well, um, I don't know. I mean, I suppose, I suppose the, the only concern is that you, you you would like to see that the i say that the local ethos of the the clubs such as they are is retained and that they remain close to the the communities because it's certainly the case that when Munster playing a big match or Leinster or whomever that this is something that really gets the, the you know there's a real there'd be a real buzz around town on, 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 on such occasions and you wouldn't like to see a situation where uh, that uh, because of a massive investment uh, by some businessman that in order to uh, get a return on his or her investment or his investment that uh, the price of tickets is inflated beyond the, the grasp of uh, regular punters who like to go and bring their kids
2: Yeah, I think the thing is they will never get a return on it. I just don't see how um, any wealthy business person, quite frankly, would get a return on it unless they can flip that investment uh, for a higher price. I mean, if you look at English soccer as an example plenty of wealthy people have uh, gotten involved in English soccer I'm a supporter of Chelsea Roman Abramovich is one of them he hasn't made a red cent out of Chelsea Uh, Tony Fernandez uh, uh, the wealthy Malaysian businessman owns uh, Queen's Park Rangers he's lost a fortune on that club Um, so you know the Glazers at Manchester United uh, are a different scenario because they loaded the club with enormous debt Um, so the, the club is bearing that financial burden not the Glazers but by and large, uh, wealthy people, it's been their plaything um, and, and and nothing more. Very few actually get out making a few bob. Alan Sugar is, is the one exception. He made some money out of Tottenham Hotspur some years ago. But he's, he's he's probably the only person I can think of off the top of my head who's actually done well out of it.
0: Well, it reminds me of what they say about players. the
2: very well. well the players are doing very well out of it absolutely there's no question about that mind you um, a, a certain J.P. McManus and a Mr. Magner and I think Dermot Desmond at the time too did very well out of uh, Manchester United they took a punt on Manchester United some years ago and sold it on uh, when it was a PLC um, but Dermot Desmond owns, uh, you know, has a controlling stake in uh, Glasgow Celtic Football Club, and I don't think—I mean, he—he has said in, in the past that it's something he did with his, his heart, not his head, and I don't think he's—he's uh, he's made a, a financial re- return on that, and, and you know, probably never will. In fact, all he seems to get these days is grief because the um, the fans aren't happy at the fact
0: that there's been so little investment in new players. You know, on the other hand though he has been running it you know like the the, the balance sheet prudently. has been pretty good as a, as a result
2: absolutely when he took over Glasgow Celtic they were in the hole big time uh, financially and he's steadied the ship he's, he's put their finances back on an even keel and the club has run uh, financially it's run prudently but of course the fans don't always uh, see it that way they want success they want, to, they want the club to be buying the best players um, and having been dumped out of the Champions League twice in uh, the space of a month or so they're not too happy at the fact that they, you know, they they just think that the the club is uh, selling its best uh, its best players.
1: But Glasgow Celtic, the record will show, is in uh, much better shape than uh, the than its arch rival Glasgow Rangers, which has uh, been through a torrid time. That's
2: true. That's true. Uh, and Rangers were demoted by three divisions uh, a few seasons ago as a result of financial irregularities and they're still not back in the Scottish Premier League and in fact even at that you would have thought that you know that would have softened their cough if you like and they would have got their finances in order but in fact they haven't they're uh, they're still operating in the red and they're talking about raising yet more money and possibly a change of ownership so it's uh, it's a funny old game
0: (laughs) (laughs) well let's hope they come up with a sustainable solution for Irish rugby uh Arthur Beasley, uh, political news editor with the Irish Times and Kieran Hancock, uh, finance correspondent with the Irish Times. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. And that's it for this week's business and technology show. I'm Tom Lyons. My producer was Sinead O'Shea uh, and sound engineer was Gary White.